0: warm Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. And if you are a parent, you know the challenge it is to have your adult uh, children as they become young adults grow up and leave the house. And letting go of adult children can be a struggle for many parents, uh, Christian and non-Christian. And when we consider that for probably 20 years of your life, you're invested in nurturing and, and uh, caring and raising the child, and to see them um, walk off into the, their, their new adventure, their new uh, life ahead, it, it can feel like a daunting task. Many parents, for many, child rearing consumes uh, your time and energy, your love and concern for a couple of decades. It's a big investment. So you put all of your heart and mind and spirit into their physical, emotional and social well-being. And it can be quite difficult when that part of your life comes to an end. So we're going to talk about that and the things children should know before leaving the nest with Dr. Greg Borgon. Always nice to have Greg on the show. Greg, welcome back. Oh, it's good to be back. Yeah. So this prompted uh, this topic was prompted by a conversation you had?
1: Yeah, recently uh, a friend of mine who has been with me for some time on, and actually sponsored several of the Heart of a Warrior uh, groups that I lead came to me one day and, and asked to meet with me at Duns Brothers and asked this question. He says, Greg, he said, because of what I'm seeing happening in the world and my children are still fairly young, what advice would you give me? What could I be spending my time on within to prepare them to navigate this ever darkening world? And so I had done some previous research because of knowing this conversation was coming up because he had sent me a previous email about the meeting. And and so this, this came out of that conversation. And so, uh, Probably can't be said any better than the article from gotquestions.org on on this subject as I uh, share a little bit about the background before we actually get to some specific recommendations for parents as they're raising their children in this current environment. So, parents who find themselves uh, in the empty nest often struggle to find an appropriate balance of love and concern for their adult children while resisting the impulse to continue to control. Basically, we know that God makes or takes the role of the parent very seriously. Admonitions to good parenting abound in Scripture. For instance, parents are to raise their children, quote, training in the training and instruction of the Lord, not frustrating or exasperating them, Ephesians 6, 4. We are to train a child in the way they should go, Proverbs 22, 6, giving them good gifts, Matthew seven eleven. loving and... Uh, disciplining them for their sake, uh, Proverbs 13, and providing for their needs, 1 Timothy 5, 8. So at the heart of the difficulty of letting go of our children, and a certain amount of, uh, there's a certain amount of fear associated with it, the world is a scary place, and uh, numerous stories of terrible things happening increase our fears. Uh, when our children are young, we can monitor their movement We can control their environment, we can guard their safety, but as they grow and mature, they begin to move out into a world on their own. We're no longer in control of their every move, who they see, where they go, or what they do. So for the Christian parent, this is where faith enters the picture. Perhaps nothing on earth is more testing of our faith than the time when our children begin to sever the bonds that have held them close to us. So letting go of children doesn't mean simply turning them loose in the world to fend for themselves. It means turning them over to our Heavenly Father who loves them more than we ever could and who guides and guards them according to His perfect will. The reality is that they are His children. They belong to Him, not to us. He's loaned them to us for a while and given us instruction on how to care for them. But eventually, we have to give them back to Him and trust that he will love them and nurture their spirits in the same way we have nurtured them physically. So the more faith we have in him, the less fearful we are, and the more we are willing to turn our children over to him. So as with so many things in Christian life, Bill, the ability to do this depends on how well we know our God and how much time we spend in his word. Amen. So what is a parent's role as children become adults? Certainly we Never let go of them in the sense of abandoning them. We're we're still their parents and always will be, but while we no longer nurture and guard them physically, we're still concerned for their welfare. <laughs> Most importantly, one of the things we need to do is pray for them. Secondly, we need to encourage them in their walk with God, offering advice when it's asked for. Uh, thirdly, big, em- big emphasis there. <laughs> yeah, when it's yeah, asked suppose, for. Yeah. Uh, we offer help if it's needed and accept their decision to receive it or reject it because we're responsible to them, but we can't take responsibility mm-hmm. for them. Finally, we respect their privacy just as we would any other adult. So when parents finally do let go of their of adult children, they often find a stronger, deeper, and more meaningful relationship than uh, ever uh, they could have imagined. So when preparing our children for adulthood, we need to consider in my view, Bill, six areas of development appropriate to their level of maturity because we have 18 to 20 years, uh, and this may seem, audience, as a daunting task, but when you take a look at it and understand it's going to be over a period of of 18 to 20 years, it may not be so alarming to you. Mm -hmm. So let's look at first the most important area of development for their life, which is spiritual development. What does that mean? It means to lead them to receive Christ as Savior and Lord. It means also stressing the importance of the Bible and shaping their character. For instance, the importance of uh, uh, biblical beliefs and values, uh, establishing a biblical worldview. Um, Also, teaching them how to study God's Word and apply it to their lives. Um, And also, identifying and fellowshipping with a local body of believers, how important that is. To help nurture them, and finally, under spiritual development, we need to model a Christ-centered life for them. It's not a perfect life, but it's a life that heads in the same direction over an extended period of time and is modeled by our behavior. Yeah. Th- those are
0: all to- tall orders. Yeah, they right are right from the get-go. And right we're, from the we're get-go. Only really one out of six. <laughs> so let's be nice to the parents out there. Huh? Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, you know, it's,
0: it's a matter of what. Hopefully, this list will
1: do. Will spur them on to develop themselves in preparation of developing their children. The second area is emotional development. What does that mean? It means helping them control destructive emotions such as anger. When is the appropriate times for anger? When are the inappropriate times for anger? What does anger do to you? So helping them understand that. And oftentimes when they have less defense mechanisms, they may make rash statements or, 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 or act out in certain ways. And that's a time not for... Uh, um, correcting them as much as it's a time for instruction on how to handle that. Uh, secondly, uh, developing the fruit of the spirit in the lives. What does it look like? What does love, joy, and peace look like when it's manifested in overt behavior? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness. What does that look like? Um, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What does that really look like? Which <laughs> the fingers are pointing back at us. Are we modeling those characteristics? Yeah, good point. And so they're going to catch, when they're young, more by what they see than what they're actually told. And as they get older, because of the consistency of what they see, they'll start listening to what they're being told.
0: That's that old saying, Greg, what you're doing speaks so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying.
1: Exactly right. Exactly right. And that means also admitting when you're wrong, asking their forgiveness. That's important. Uh, Also under emotion of the valve, it means regulating the tongue. That means... What's proper language? Uh, it means the attitude you're conveying as you're communicating. Um, it's being able to handle those temperamental outbursts. When are they inappropriate and so forth. Uh, under emotional developments, it's also self-management, which has to do with self-discipline. How do they develop the skill of disciplining themselves? How do they discipline or, or uh, you know, exhibit self-control in their lives? How do they handle stress when stress happens? And it's going to happen to them. Mm -hmm. How to deal with the idea of having a moderated life, not an exorbitant, all things go type of a life. So moderation is important as well, as well as understanding their personal temperament and how they see the world through that temperament and how to leverage that temperament for healthy, effective, and positive uh, means. So that's very important. And also, under emotional development, is interpreting the world around them through a biblical worldview so they understand how God sees the world, how he engages the world, and what's important to him. So, those are important under emotional development. Okay. The third area is relational development. So, so far, we've talked about spiritual development, we've touched on emotional development, and certainly you could add to this list especially from your circumstances. This is not exhaustive, but this is what I felt at the time were the most important areas. So under relational development, uh, we need to teach our children how to communicate with
0: others. And especially adults.
1: And especially adults. Yeah.
0: Talking with adults is important. You don't want your kids sitting looking at the phone when you're trying to have conversation with adults and you're hoping they're gonna be socializing with these adults as well. One of the things I told my boys,
1: because as you know, we're leaving for Ireland. uh
0: it <laughs>
1: Was I that think I need this today? I, I talked about some etiquette that they needed to have. And I said, one of them is that the Irish think it's very rude when you're at dinner, if you're staring at your phone. Yeah. You need to put that phone down or when you're talking to somebody, you're not looking at the phone. Right. And so that's what it is in that environment. Frankly, that's what it should be in this environment as well. Um, Secondly, under relational development, how to pick your friends, what to look for in a friend. I also tell my boys that you become who you hang around with. So you got to choose those friends carefully because they will impact you no matter how guarded you might be or how protected you might feel you are. They'll rub off on you. Yep. So you need to pick your friends carefully. Also under relational development, how to resist peer pressure, how to know how to say no. That's a big one. It is because peer pressure is so strong in our kids today.
0: Oh, yeah. You can get cut off immediately from social circles if you don't go along or agree with or adhere to.
1: Exactly right. And if there isn't a loving environment from which they come, they have nowhere else to turn but to capitulate or to bend their knee to that peer pressure. But when they come from a loving environment, one that gives them guidelines and boundaries that they understand, and they've been taught how to engage such pressure, then they're better equipped when it comes their way. It doesn't mean they'll always be successful, but it means that they'll have the foundation to become successful in that area. Mm -hmm. So... How to resist peer pressure. Another thing under relational development bill is how to treat others, especially those who you disagree with. In other words, giving them ideas about proper etiquette socially. How do you engage? When do you decide to make a stand? When do you decide to hold back? Um, and so, you know, just those those kinds of issues related to social etiquette. And, and the final area under relational development is how to deal with differences of opinion. Now, that begs the question um, that even when there are differences of opinion, how do you respectfully respond? It says in Scripture it's supposed to be with gentleness and reverence, not with increased volume and uh, monologue rhetoric rhetoric that you give them. Yeah. So that's important.
0: I like that. We're going to continue uh, this discussion, uh, Things Children Should Know, before leaving the nest. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest, and we're going to be right back after a very short break. My guest is Dr. Greg Borgon. He is the founder and president of Heart of a Warrior. You can learn more about him and his ministry at heartofawarrior.org. We're talking today about key important things children should know before they leave the nest. And right before we went to break, Greg, we were talking about relational development. And one of the things you said, it's important to teach how to treat others, especially those you disagree with. And then you threw out the word social etiquette. <laughs> and I thought, that's a great couple of words exactly what do they mean today in 2022
1: well what i mean by social etiquette bill are things like showing respect and kindness to others it's also having basic dining etiquette for instance now, this uh, is where
0: you're losing me <laughs>
1: <laughs> speaking politely to other people which includes saying sorry and thank you when yes needed. amen to that it's learning effective communication skill knocking on a door before opening it as simple as that maintaining a non-judgmental attitude to other people's decisions and choice of living and learning to accept differences when it comes to religion or cultural backgrounds even though you hold your own ground about your own beliefs it's and it goes to even fundamentally cleaning up after yourself and doing your part in cleaning your bathroom and uh, bedroom not going through private stuff of others yeah, yeah. Uh, another one would be not looking at uh, their mobile phones and social settings and when others are speaking to you, mm-hmm. just something that we had yeah. come in. The other thing I would say, Bill, under uh, relational development is teaching our kids how to cope with failure. How do they deal with failure? How are they not uh, petrified by it or immobilized by it? And how do they rise out of it? So, I mean, that, that's an that's important conversation probably going to happen multiple times as they go up. Failure
0: is life-giving. Yes, it is. It's necessary.
1: Well, it, there's no one successful who hasn't experienced failure. That's true. Uh, so it's learning how to cope with that failure. Well, the fourth area uh, of development, Bill, uh, in my mind, is intellectual development. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, teaching our children how to develop good study habits. We may have had terrible study habits. Maybe we, learn, we have to learn in our adulthood what are good study habits and, and, and then convey them uh, to our children. Uh, secondly, how to tell truth from falsehood. In other words, um, you know, what's responsible Internet use? How do you determine whether an Internet page is valid for consideration or invalid? Um, uh, proper use of social media.
0: Yeah, I'll throw in critical thinking in that one, too.
1: Absolutely. That's a great idea. Critical thinking, learning how to go ahead and forge an argument, how to think through concretely, how to deal with a particular issue that there may be in disagreement. But that's certainly an important area. Making wise decisions. How do you make wise decisions? How do you take responsibility and assume accountability? How do you solve problems? What do you go through? What are the steps to solving a problem? How do you assess, for instance, world ideologies and philosophies that differ from your own, you know, other worldviews. How do you see them compared to your own biblical worldview? And it could be as simple as how do you select a career? How do you go ahead and leverage how God's wired you into something that's productive in society and that will bring a living to your family and bring income to your home, as well as additions to reach out and help others who don't have that resource? Personal hygiene is another issue, under intellectual development, you know, how do you take care of yourself physically? How, you may be as simple as how do you do laundry? How do you clean your living spaces? Finally, under intellectual development, how to determine your, their uniqueness? How do they come to comfort about how they've been wired instead of adopting somebody else's persona for their life or somebody else's approach and seeing it doesn't work for them? How do they find out, how did God wire me? What are my talents? Yeah. What are my gifts? Uh, What are my abilities? And and how can I leverage them for effective and positive uses, especially for facilitating God's redemptive purposes in a fallen world? So those are all important areas under intellectual development. I mean, choosing the right school for your child, making sure that they're not in a school of indoctrination, but they're in a school for education. Mm -hmm. That's important, picking the right school for them. Now, number five is physical development. How do they become physically fit? What are the kinds of things that they should be adhering to? Proper exercise, healthy recreation, not unhealthy recreation. Mm -hmm. How do they, as their body changes, um, um, how do they accommodate those changes in terms of the exercise they're engaged in? Those are important things under physical development. Uh, Also, it could include things like how do they shop for food? Um, What are the uh, basic skills to cooking? How do they select healthy produce? How do they prepare basic meals? What's the proper use of cooking utensils? How do they use the microwave in the stove? Also, we need to tell them during this period of development, under physical development, how do they access health care? In other words, who do they call? Where do they go? How do they stay safe? How do they assess danger? How do they avoid unsafe environments? How do they get around the city? How do they drive safely? And finally, on, under physical development, how do they manage time? How do they establish priorities, setting goals, organizing activities, and developing schedules? So those are all important under the heading of physical development. The final area, Bill, is financial management. How do they establish a budget? How do they save money? How do they set aside some to for tithing or giving to others in need? How do they discern a need versus a want? How do they manage money? In other words, we have to teach them about credit cards, about student loans, about good debt versus bad debt, about spending habits, what are good, healthy spending habits. We have to talk to them about work ethics How do they res- and the importance of respecting authority, of taking on responsibility, of taking initiative, of compliance, of being a good employee, about good work habits, about how to develop a resume, how to apply for a job. Those are all very important. Then it's also about establishing a banking account, which is writing checks if they're still in existence by the time they reach adulthood, which most people don't write checks anymore. They use debit cards. But how to use credit and debit cards, how to take out a loan, how to pay their bills. And finally, under financial management is living within one's means. In other words, establishing boundaries, adhering to a budget, determining uh, needs, managing desires, discerning marketing ploys. Um, identifying scams. I mean, I get those calls daily as you probably do on the phone or I get oftentimes because my books are out there. We've got all of these people that want to help me sell my books, which always cost you money and end up being a scam. But those are the areas that I think are important for us to focus and to fulfill our responsibilities to our children and have them take responsibility for their behavior.
0: Mm -hmm. Very comprehensive list, Greg. I know there's. parents listening to this right now and you've exhausted them. (laughs) And I don't mean that in a bad way, but they're hoping they can uh, maybe complete one simple task between now and dinner. And (laughs) they have all this now to think about, which is not a bad thing, but I think the best thing we can do is probably create a link to your material um, and give them a second chance to look at it. And that way they can uh, click on a link in the podcast and go, here are the areas that we talked about today. It started with spiritual development. Then we went to emotional development, relational, intellectual, physical, and financial. It's a pretty it's a pretty uh, well-constructed list. Uh, I loved each category. I think you did a really nice job of uh, having good meat on every one of these bones.
1: Oh, thanks a lot, Bill. Yeah. Hopefully yeah. it's helpful to the audience.
0: Yeah, and I just want to... Say that we, we say this with, with great care and compassion. This is a lot of information. And if you feel uh, challenged as a parent, like 100% of all parents do, <laughs> uh, this was not intended in any way to say, hey, you need to do more. Uh-huh. Um, we just want to make you uh, aware of these different areas and things to pay attention to along the way. But let me just tell you, you're doing a great job. Yeah,
1: And it's a matter of there may be an area, depending on where their age of development is right now, that you want to hone in on, one of those six areas that you want to focus on right? because it's so important because they're either getting ready to leave the nest pretty pretty soon or very soon thereafter. Uh, So you might want to pick one or two of those areas to focus on. Spiritual development would always be at the top of my list.
0: Well, great to have you in studio. Have a wonderful trip to Ireland. I sure will will. see you when you come back. All right, right, if I come back. If you come back. (laughs) Dr. Greg Borgon has been my guest. You can go to heartofawarrior.org to learn more about Greg. He's got books there and uh, all kinds of information, heartofawarrior.org. We'll take a short break and be right back. teaching time always my favorite and i always love doing it with my friend uh dr greg headington he's been nice enough to uh, take us through many books and we just completed our 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 study of first and second peter and now we're going to jump into the book of james so get your bibles out get your notebooks out and your pencils ready and we're going to get dive into this uh for many sessions coming up greg is a uh, longtime friend and bible teacher a pastor evangelist an amazing missionary around the world. Greg, welcome.
2: Great to be here, Bill. Yeah,
0: I can't wait to get into the book of James. I love James. I know many do, so let's uh, let's get started.
2: Well, welcome to the first lesson in our new study of the letter of James. Our central idea for this lesson is the term imago Dei. Now, let me spell that. It's I-M-A-G-O, Second word, D-E-I, that's Imago Dei. That's a Latin term, which means the image of God. In other words, all people are created in the image of God. I'm going to be referring to that throughout. So that's that's our overview of uh, the book of James. So let's start. If you're taking notes, Roman numeral one, James, the author. There are several James listed in scripture. There's James, the son of Alphaeus, who is listed as an apostle in Mark three verse eighteen, but most scholars believe he's not the one that is the, the writer of the letter. There's also James, the brother of John, the Sons of Zebedee, those brothers were called, which uh they're also referred to as uh Sons of Thunder, which has got to be one of the all time great rock band names, Sons of Thunder. <laughs> In fact I think there was a group called Sons of Thunder Um, But that James has been ruled out because, as Acts 12, 2 states, he died as a martyr before the book of James was written. The most likely candidate for the authorship of this letter is James, who's mentioned in Mark 6, verse 3, who's the half-brother of Jesus. And I say half-brother because James' father was Joseph. But Jesus' father was, well, Jehovah God, the Alpha and the Omega, the creator of all. So they were half brothers. James had not believed in Jesus during his earthly ministry, according to John seven fifteen. But when Jesus appeared to him after the resurrection, then James dramatically gave his life to Jesus, according to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. Now, James occupation is not mentioned, but in all likelihood, he was a carpenter. Why do I say that? Because his father was a carpenter. The word for carpenter in Greek is the word tecton, which literally means one who works with stone and wood. Today we'd call them a mason, but we'd also call them a carpenter, but more typically, people refer to Jesus as carpenter. Now I'm saying he was probably a tecton because like his father, every son, unless they were a military or explorer, would follow directly in the path of their father's steps as would all the other brothers who are mentioned there. Uh, of course, Jesus, brother of James, Joseph, Joseph, excuse me, Judas, not to be confused with Iscariot, and then Simon, are all mentioned in Mark 6, verse 3, although his sisters are not mentioned by their names. James' letter is written to the, quote, 12 tribes scattered among the nations. In other words, James is writing to Jewish followers of Jesus and to believing Gentiles all over the Middle East, North Africa, and Europe who believed in the gospel already. And that's why James' emphasis is on doing the faith in action. Not just believing, but doing it. <clears throat> he wants readers to grasp the truth that Jesus taught in Matthew twelve thirty-three when he said, A tree is known by its fruit. Now, the famous Jewish historian Josephus writes of James' martyrdom around the year 62 A.D., and since James would emerge as the recognized leader of the Jerusalem church in 44 A.D., that places a writing this letter possibly in the early 40s A.D. Now, some people wonder if James puts too much emphasis on doing rather than just having faith. In fact, this is been some people who have just been too critical of James and said no I know he isn't talking about salvation by faith alone but let me give you something from history that we know for a fact historically we know that at a critical council meeting of church representatives in Jerusalem which is mentioned in Acts 15 starting in verse 12 James throws his support behind the apostle Paul's position That observance of the law is not a condition for the salvation of the Gentiles. It's faith. Faith alone brings salvation. Now, that particular position by Fames would lead Paul to later describe James as a, quote, pillar of the church. And you can read that in Galatians 2, verse 9. And James was indeed a pillar of the church. Now, we learn a couple of key things about James by the way he identifies himself in the opening verse of his letters. The letter begins, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This brief introduction expresses two things. So if you're taking notes, Roman numeral two, two key facts about James. First, James was already well known. He introduces himself only with his first name, because he's quietly confident that his readers can identify him, which would certainly set him apart from anyone else whose name was James at the time. Second, he shows great humility. James is the only one of the New Testament writers who does not include additional qualification. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, he doesn't say, for instance, Oh, yes, by the way, I'm sure you might know my brother, who is the (laughs) Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Uh, light of the world. Oh, that feel good. (laughs) Oh, yes, and did I mention the Savior of all mankind? (laughs) Now, I don't know about you, but I think that would have been a temptation for anyone. Mm -hmm. Nor does James mention that he is, in fact, the leader of the early church. Instead, he wants to be known simply as a servant of God. Now that Greek word for servant is doulos, which is also translated as slave, and that describes someone who lives under the authority of someone else. And in this case, James has chosen to live under the authority of the Lord of all, who just happens to be his half-brother. Now, let's look at some of the theological beliefs from that culture. So, Roman numeral three, Imago Dei, which is actually the title of our talk. From the beginning, Jews, Christians, and Muslims insisted that every man, woman, and child is created in the Imago Dei. Again, that's the Latin expression which states that all humans are created in the image of God. As a result, all people possess equal and inestimable worth. In fact, the framers of our own country consciously repurposed this biblical teaching when the U.S. Continental Congress affirmed this on July 4, 1776, when it was written, quote, All men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. So this belief of the image of God lies at the heart of the Christian view of human dignity, and we might assume that, that such a high view of the person would be similar in every century. But that is simply not the case. Now, whenever I read scripture, it's important to always remember we are not reading about a similar society like ours today in the Western world. I'll give you an example of this. My wife, Carrie, and I, every other Friday during the school year, invite co- graduate college students almost exclusively from China to our home for dinner. We talk about all kinds of things, mostly reach out with just the love of Jesus. I always tell them when things come up, for instance, they know Easter, something has to do with bunny rabbits and Christmas has something to do with Christmas trees. In fact, they've never even seen a Christmas tree typically until they come from China and see one here. But I say, well, let me explain a little bit about that. Now, Christmas is about Jesus. Okay, I'll say this is hard to believe. Jesus was not a Texan. He was not an American. He was, in fact, a Jew who lived in Palestine. Do you know where Palestine is? It's in the Middle East. So this faith that we follow is not an American faith. It originated in the Middle East. That always gets their attention, and they're always surprised by that. So now I want to talk about how difficult, or excuse me, how different the world was in a little bit. But that's just sort of a, a little preview. But let's look briefly at chapter 1. So, um, Roman numeral 3, how to consider trials in our lives. Here's the main idea of chapter 1 in one sentence. God wants his people to triumph over their trials and live in obedience to his commandments. Let me repeat that. God wants his people to triumph over their trials and live in obedience to his commandments. The testing of our faith is introduced in chapter 1, verse 2, and, and that theme runs throughout the letter. The trials to which James refers do not necessarily refer to open persecution, but rather any kind of pressure which tempts a believer to give up on faith. For example, perhaps it's illness, tragedy, subtle harassment from non-believers, or simply maintaining our values in a hostile world. Such trials are not traps set for us by God, but come from our own original human nature, which sadly our parents way back, Adam and Eve, uh, really dropped the ball on that one, and that's where it came from. Now, that's mentioned in verses 13 to 16. To endure such testing enhances our growth and maturity and wins the crown of life, which is mentioned in verses 4 and 12. Now, I wish there were a shortcut. I wish there was another way to maturity besides the struggle, but there's not. It's, it's like when someone cheats on a test or uses someone else's paper in school that's not their own because th- there's no learning involved in that. We do not just attend Bible study. We take notes. We focus. We remember them because we want to grow to know our Lord better, and we want to learn about how we can trust him in his goodness. Our faith includes knowledge, but it is more about transformation a total heart change, gaining godly wisdom so we can live a more full and joyous life, even in the midst of struggles. I mean, we do not want to stay the same. We want all that the Lord has for us. And I don't know about you, but I have to make that commitment to the Lord every day. Roman numeral four, life in the Roman Empire. I think it's really important to remember that any time we pick up Scripture, we're not reading about a culture, a society like ours in the Western world today. To put this briefly and bluntly, life 2,000 years ago in our world was violent and short, and the ethical behavior was so very different from what many of us would consider to be civilized. Human value was not worth much. I'm not saying that we don't have the same temptations of people in the first century, but the normal standards for life in the empire were more merciless. Here's just one issue that clearly demonstrates what the Roman Empire believed regarding the worth of human beings, whom we know are made in the image of God. It's the Imago Dei. Throughout the Greek and Roman world, excess children were frequently discarded if the parents felt they could not afford to feed another mouth or if the child was physically or mentally disabled or if it were a girl. Now, Bill, I've got a lot more to say about this, and I think we might just want to take a break at this point.
0: I think that's uh, a okay with us. We're talking to Dr. Greg Heddington, and we're so glad to be starting in a new study on the book of James. So if you just joined us, open your Bible to the book of James. It's always helpful to have a notebook out because Greg gives us lots of great notes. We'll be right back. back to the show. Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest, and we're continuing our study, which we just started today on the book of James, and we're doing a little bit of an overview, and this is a fascinating uh, book. I l- always have loved James. I talk to so many believers who love James, too, and so I- I'm excited. We're digging in, Greg. Let's, uh, let's pick up
2: where we okay, left Bill. off. Well, in this first half, we've been talking about how different life was in the 500 years in which the Roman Empire existed and how we believe today. One of the best examples was how incredibly different things were is that throughout the Greek and Roman world, excess children were frequently discarded if the parents felt they could not afford to feed another mouth or if the child was physically or mentally disabled or if it were a girl. It was a practice euphemistically called exposure, which meant the baby would be either left outside to be killed by animals, taken by child traffickers, fall victim to the elements, or be picked up by Christ followers who would raise it as their own. Now, people often think of the Roman Empire in more romantic ways, and I hear people talk about, oh, if we could bring the Roman Empire back. No. Yeah, the Romans were, let's just say, they were forward-thinkings in their time, because they were incredibly, you know, made uh, innovations in architecture, medicine, literature, aqueducts. They were engineering geniuses buildings roads the calendar but consider the lack of value and innate godly worth given to an individual and remember that by 300 a.d there were 50 million people who lived in the roman empire so imagine the untold number of children allowed to die just because they were born as girls or disabled mm. However, let's also consider the historical fact that hundreds of believers picked up those abandoned infants, reared them as their own, and regularly protested against the practices of exposure of children to the Roman Empire. Now think about this. Hundreds of thousands of people who are alive today, perhaps millions who are descendants of those rescued babies, they're only descendants because they were picked up by the first Christ followers and maybe you're one of them so as i talk about these things let's not forget the significance that we as believers view each person as having intrinsic value because we are all born in the imago dei the latin word the image of god as god says in genesis 1 26 let us make man in our image now that's one of the scriptural evidences for the trinity when god said let us make man And then in verse 27 of Genesis 1, he says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female. In brief, the practice of exposure continued for centuries, largely due to the influence of the most influential Greek philosopher, Aristotle, who lived in the 4th century B.C., who had written this, quote, As to exposing or rearing children born, let there be a law that no deformed child shall be reared, In the quotation. That statement might change your view as to whether Aristotle was the greatest of Greek philosophers. Now, what was so radical about the Christian faith of the image of God? What set Christ's followers dramatically apart from their culture? For 500 years, the Greeks and the Romans understood that the value of a person was determined by one's usefulness to society. Friends, our belief in the Imago Dei, remember, humans created in the image of God, is so different from other societies, like the Marxist-Leninist view or, or the communistic view of people. How else could the Nazis have murdered 6 million Jews and 5 million Gentiles unless they disbelieve that all people are of godly value, that all people are created in the image of God? And loved by him. And not because of their usefulness to society, but because of their intrinsic, their inherent value to God. That's why they're worth something. How else could Joseph Stalin have been responsible for the deaths of 15 to 20 million of his own people in the Soviet Union? Or how about Sherman Mao's great leap forward, which murdered and starved somewhere between... 10 and 50 million. I'm not going to go any further than this. But let me say this next sentence very carefully. An atheistic position does not necessarily promote the killing of innocent people, but it philosophically allows for the neglect or killing of unproductive people. Let me say this again. Mm. An atheistic position does not necessarily promote the killing of innocent people, but it philosophically allows for the neglect or killing of unproductive people. Well, why do I say this? Well, if you don't believe in God, then what is your absolute? What is your absolute authority? Government? You yourself? If there's no absolute authority like God, why not kill unproductive people? So... Well, let's have let's have a closure on the subject of the Roman practice of exposure. It's really unpleasant to think about and to talk about. But in the Roman Empire, we know that Christ followers and Jews eventually got their wish, and Roman law banned the intentional killing of infants finally in 374 AD, which was 62 years after the first maybe we should say Christian in italics, Christian Roman emperor Constantine, when he gained control as the emperor. Roman numeral five, the impact of the New Testament writers on society. After all, this is what it's about. We can talk about a lot of things that happened before the New Testament, but Jesus made it all happen. He brought it all together. Besides agreeing with the Jews that, um, this, that a person was to worship only one God, and that was a key part of Jews. They talk about the book. They worship the book, and they knew the followers of Jesus worship the book and worship one God rather than a pantheon of gods like the Romans and the Greeks did. And Jesus was God in human flesh. There are other tangible differences which New Testament writers made about their culture, but that's the main one. Jesus was the Imago Dei, created in the image of God. In fact, he was God. James and other first century believers drew more and more Jews and Gentiles to the transformative news that there is a loving God and creator whom one can know through the reading of Scripture and through the Holy Spirit. And that all people bear the image of God, the Imago Dei. It's always good to learn one, one other phrase from another culture, and that would be our Latin phrase for the day. Therefore, all people possess inestimable value and worth. Now, we also know it has been the Christ followers who founded many hospitals and orphanages throughout the century. All we have to do is look over, the, oh, there's the Methodist Hospital, there's the Presbyterian Hospital, But it was the influence of believers and the writers who made divorce more difficult in the the Roman Empire. It was the believers who were the ones that gave financial support to the impoverished and the sick. And by the 5th century, they lobbied the government to put a final ban on the cruel and murderous gladiatorial games. And believe me, believers did become, and ever since Constantine, uh, who started in around 325 A.D., believers did get involved in the political process, and they spoke out very with great leadership and with great power, because Constantine had quote Christianized the Western world. Now, over the past 23 years, I have made numerous mission trips to Cuba. And I know from firsthand experience that the communist government virtually ignores the people who are elderly and disabled, whom they consider to be of little value in society. It's the brothers and sisters in Christ who sacrificially care about those in need. Whether or not those people receive help, our believers, or Hindus, or Muslims, they are all helped by the believers because we're all made in the image of God. But you don't have to take my word for it. Let me just read This email that I got last week from a Cuban brother. Here's what he said. The Cuban infrastructure has basically collapsed. The church is the, is the only institution doing social programs, caring for the poor, the sick, the hungry, the mentally disabled, and the elderly. I was able to use the money you sent to purchase precious necessities like aspirin and food. 713 Cubans who protested against the government in July are still in prison, and now they've been sentenced to anywhere from six years to 20 years in prison. Some of the people are as young as 18. And, friends, we already know there's thousands of people in, in Cuban prisons. And I don't know what's going to happen to Cuba. I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to many other troubled places in the world. But I know that the top 50, uh, most of the top 50 charitable organizations by revenue are U.S. and Christian charities. I want to end this lesson by just giving the words of another Roman who talked about, uh, well, he's a believer. He just said, give to the blind, the sick, the lame, the destitute, because if you don't care about them, God does. And, Bill, that's it. That's the word.
0: Well, Greg, what a great start to the book of James. Again, every time we have teaching time together, it always uh, moves me to want to go back and study more. That's one of the gifts I think you have. Not only do you present so clearly— but you motivate, which is what you do with me, which is always a good sign. So, Thanks, Bill. Greg, thank you so much for taking time to do the show. I'm looking for learning more about James in the upcoming lessons. Have a great rest of the day. That wraps up our time. Uh, We'll take a short break and be right back in just a minute.